0: Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host, for today's exciting tale of terror Bill Rabane's Giant Spider Invasion. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your hosts. I am Ash. I am joined as always by the one, the only John aka the Liquor guy. How's it going, John the Liquor guy? Uh
1: I am very I am I am also one of the hosts. Uh I am also I'm also doing very well. I'm I'm extremely I'm extremely uh I don't know if excited is the right word uh to talk about the film that we're talking about today uh but i can't wait i think this is going to be an absolute wild ride of an episode
0: i mean i i am filled with this uh immortalized hopefulness that could only emerge uh from the higher plane of wisconsin so
1: yeah some some serious wisconsin cheese vibes this is <laughs> this is this is what we're doing um, okay.
0: Much like cheese, we have fermented, uh, uh, powerful takes, and we are recording from the horror vanguard cheese castle, just I, off the interstate.
1: <laughs> I, I have been looking forward to this to this bit of the show all day. Now, dear listeners, friends, comrades, gather close. We are talking about the legendary cult classic, the giant spider invasion. Now, unforgivably, some people, some among you, may never have come across this film. Uh, Some of you may have only come across it secondhand through uh, Mystery Science Theatre. But I I advise you all, wherever you are listening to this episode, to just take a moment, centre yourselves, and listen closely as my dear co-host and friend, tells you, and everyone else, what this film is really all about.
0: What is Giant Spider Invasion? More than just a fragment of early 1970s indie cinema, it's a discursive tool, a lens through which we can focus our conversation on a cultural interregnum, a lost paradigm of American understanding. This film unfolds as the castle of a Toronto for a new field of the gothic, The Wisconsin Gothic. Not quite the Midwest, not the industrial expanse of the Rust Belt, nor the rolling bucolics of the Plains, Wisconsin is a cultural labyrinth. It is also a Gothic political ambiguity. Wisconsin is the home of conservative ghouls like Joseph McCarthy and Scott Walker, while also being home to America's most successful socialist government and some of the boldest strikes in our nation's history. All of this is overlaid on the top of the buried history and genocide of Ojibwe, Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Oneida peoples. Wisconsin is also the core of America's relationship to the former Soviet Union. This is shaped by more than just the aforementioned vacuity of McCarthy, but also a close encounter between the American and the Soviet. At 4.30 a.m. September 5th, 1962, the Soviet spaceship Sputnik would come hurtling back toward Earth. However, the voices of the Piatnitsky Russian Choir would not sing in their Soviet homeland, but on a quiet street in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. In the midst of the Cold War, an experiment in Soviet spaceflight would make first contact with alien life a world away, igniting an unspoken, revolutionary hope, a brief glimpse of Soviet cosmism in America's Dairyland. Yuri Gargarin, the first man in space, would say of being a cosmonaut, The path of a cosmonaut is not an easy, triumphant march to glory, as some people make it out to be. You have to put in a lot of work, a lot of sweat, and have to get to know the meaning of not just joy, but also grief, before being allowed in the spacecraft cabin. Could we not say the same thing for being a puppeteer in the belly of a gigantic wooden spider? The encounter with Sputnik fuels Wisconsinite imagination. It would be overly simplistic to view Giant Spider Invasion as just another giant bug movie that sublimates fears over the atom bomb. It is an act of cosmic communion with the alien powers of the Soviet. A demonstration that the act of piercing anti-communist propaganda is nothing short than the equal of piercing God's firmament itself. Approaching Giant Spider Invasion requires something deeper than just an act of engagement with the ideological symbolism as depicted on screen. It needs an actively political theory of cultural engagement. A historically materialist approach to giant spiders and what it means when they invade. This evening, go out into the night air. Look into the heavens and find your messenger shrieking across the void of eternity. There is a Sputnik destined to crash into your unassuming city streets. There are giant spiders that will invade you. This cannot be avoided. This cannot be denied we have only to look to the heavens with open arms and hands held in communion with everyone else awaiting their touch of the numinous join us as we discuss bill rebane's giant spider invasion
1: ah oh, ch- chills chill I, literal literal chills um i i am so that, that was that was that was as good uh, a little behind the scenes kind of knowledge for everybody. Like Ash Ash writes the Precy and the very first time that I hear it is when we record each episode of the show. Um so everybody gets to hear my kind of unfiltered response to hearing it for the first time. And <laughs> and I'm just I am just sitting here with the world's biggest smile on my face. Uh that was so good. But Why, thank you. But before we go too much further. I think it's time that we both enter the, the formalism zone,
0: and we can get there thanks to our experimental Soviet spacecraft that hopes to achieve cosmic immortality.
1: <laughs> um, w- well, uh, we are talking about we are talking about legendary uh, micro-budget filmmaker Bill Rebane, um, someone whose work that you are more familiar with than 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 I so maybe to kind of start off our explorations of the formalism zone would you mind just kind of giving giving me and everyone else listening a little bit of Bill Rubain 101 who are we dealing with here?
0: Uh, Bill Rubain is a very interesting character Uh, so he's born in Latvia and then emigrates to the United States as a teenager he becomes a millionaire, actually, very quickly for importing um, innovative camera techniques that were being used in Europe at the time, but that you know, America hadn't quite gotten around to. Um, so this, this like sparks his wealth, kind of initiating something of a formalist revolution in cinema in, in the most mild way possible, because nobody knows who Bill Rubin is unless you're into like weird regional cinema. He's made a bunch of great movies, or great, I guess, quotes here. Um, Giant Spider Invasion was one of the uh, highest-grossing movies the year it came out. He also made uh, Monster Agogo. Um, Herschel Gordon-Lewis finished that film after he started it. Then there's uh, The Alpha Dis- Incident, The Capture of Bigfoot, The Demons of Ludlow, Blood Harvest, Twister's Revenge, which is about a monster truck that has an artificial intelligence. So that rules... Um, and this is this is kind of, this is what we get. This is what we get with Bill Rubin.
1: And politically, like what kind of, because I know quite a lot of the people who kind of got started in, in micro budget or like uh, exploitation cinema had a sort of outsider's perspective, often had um, kind of really interesting politics. What What kind of person are we talking about?
0: I mean, really interesting politics is probably the way I would describe Bill Rubain. Um, if, if we look at the politics intra his movies, things are just really strange. And that kind of reflects his, his politics during his life. There's not a lot written about this, but we do know that he was a, a member of the America Reform Party, um, which they, they've kind of, uh, post-Tea Party, they've kind of become just like discount MAGA people they've just kind of gone down that route, but they have like a, a few incongruous things that they support, you know, like healthcare reform um, and, and a few things like that. But of course they also deny climate change and they're anti-immigration and all your other standard, uh, you know, like Republican garbage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Robert, is it, do you think it's fair to say that Ruben is like a, a, a would you describe him as a micro budget filmmaker?
0: I mean, I, I think that's really fair. Like, I think, I mean, like, you know, like the 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 budget size definitions are always kind of a little ambiguous and a little shifting, right? Because, like, you know, we can call Rabane micro budget, but then there are there are filmmakers making their movies on like one one hundredth of what Rabane had access to. Um, but I think, in the grand scheme of things, he's he's shooting his movies on like a shoestring budget.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um should we should we should we just kind of like talk a about some of the f- formal elements of this movie um before we get into the discourse?
0: Um Yeah, yeah. So so I guess uh how many scripts were there? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a this is a weird
1: this is a this is my take on this film. This this film is weird. This film is deeply weird. Um and it's weird for lots of lots of lots of practical reasons, firstly, but also maybe some kind of discursive reasons we can get into. But like firstly, there are like at least two scripts that that are are in here. Because one, this film is like super kind of goofy and slightly camp and has lots of really silly jokes in it. And this film is also like super serious, like a science thriller. Uh, and it's just both. It's both at the same time.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The the issue of multiple scripts in this movie is is pretty strange because we have a serious movie about giant spiders invading Earth and a movie that's about giant spiders invading Earth. Hmm. Um.
1: Yes. I. I. It's. It's a very strange film. Uh, practically, it has some. 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 Some problems a lot of this was shot day for night so they would do the shooting in the daytime uh mostly because that's easier to light um and then in post would make it look would darken the shots so that you would think that it was night the problem is um i'm assuming back in the 70s that this was a kind of difficult process to control because there's a lot in this film where it's not just dark it's almost so dark you can't see what's going on but 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 the attitude was clearly, ah, it'll be fine. It'll it'll add to the mood, and that was decided to be, you know, stuck in as well.
0: I mean, the- if if you're gonna if you're gonna do day for night, which you should never do, I think this is just better than blue filter night, which is where things yes. just kind of turn a little blue in order for you to think it's nighttime. Because I guess like. I don't know about you, but every time the sun sets, um, I lose all color vision except for shades of blue. So it's just a <laughs> realistic experience.
1: Yeah, it's uh, everyone knows that as soon as the sun goes down, you just get like a, a cyan filter over your entire eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's. There's one thing that that I very much would like to talk about, though, but let us talk about the VW Beetle.
0: Who would have thought that a movie about giant spiders would never have happened without a beetle?
1: hey uh, would you mind maybe explaining a little bit
0: uh so so i think you know let me let me just paint a picture for you um you want to make a movie about giant spiders invading earth um and in order to sell that effect those giant spiders have to move around mm-hmm. yep. um this is the 70s so we're about two decades past the like Heyday of superimposed close-up shots of actual spiders just kind of skittering about. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to now. Now it's kind of expected that your effects are going to be in situ, right? You, they're, they're going to be somewhere in the screen itself. How, how how would one make a giant spider chase people? And and the answer is you build a giant wooden spider on top of a VW, <laughs> 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 and then you drive it at people. <laughs> Um, it's, I'm,
1: I'm, I am hard pressed to kind of like find additional words to, to, to paint the picture for those of you who've not seen the film. Uh, but it's, it's unlike anything, anything, if you're thinking to yourself, wow, that, that can't possibly look anything like how a spider actually moves. Uh, one, you'd be completely correct, but two, <laughs> but two, you're forgetting that these are giant spiders. Mm -hmm.
0: and as we all know giant spiders leave tire tread tracks when they chase children off the baseball diamond which is one of my favorite parts of this movie it's that is actually one of my favorite parts as
1: well it's just incredible
0: i just i just love the fact that the the spiders leave tire treads it's just it's part it's part of the bill remain magic and there's so much about these giant spiders that didn't make it into the movie Mm -hmm. um like there's a scene where a giant spider in a tree is supposed to explode and um, so here, here's the shot. We've got a giant spider in a tree, and it's literally full of gunpowder. Um, two, two dudes are several branches above this thing, and they're dropping lit matches down onto the IED spider. Uh, and Bill Rabane is just filming from a safe distance. Um, so they drop one match. Nothing happens. Match two, nothing happens. Uh, they're getting a little annoyed. They drop the entire matchbook on fire on onto the IED spider. Nothing happens. Uh, Bill, Bill Rubain shuts off his camera, and then the tree explodes. Uh, <laughs> uh, injuring, of course, both uh, stagehands in the process, and Bill Rubain was uh, allegedly incredibly furious that he missed his shot, and not that he had just kind of barbecued two of his staff.
1: Yeah, uh you you might have uh just been straight up murdered by by a bomb that we put in this prop but we also missed the shot uh the two things are about the same the two things are about the same that's everyone knows that
0: there's another one too that's like i think even worse somehow but there was supposed to be a scene where a giant spider jumps on a house and crushes it calling back to the vw spider how do you achieve such a thing (laughs) that that's
1: that's a great question
0: and how did they achieve this? Well, here, here's how you do it. You, you take your giant spider, which is essentially a puppet that two guys need to operate, and you lift it up on a crane on top of a house. And then you lift it above that house with two guys still inside of it. And then you have some tractors uh, that have chains going into the house that are going to drive away real quick to collapse the house once the spider hits it. And then you just kind of do that. Um and in and in the process, you nearly impale both of your puppeteers. <laughs> so 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 when I say it takes the same kind of like courage, but also like understanding of grief and mortality that it takes to be a cosmonaut to work on a Bill Rabine movie, I mean it.
1: No, you're not wrong. You you are a hundred percent correct.
0: I I would just love now if like some somewhere in Russia, like a a. VW with a spider taped at to the top of it, just like crashed into someone's field.
1: <laughs> uh, wouldn't that just be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't that just be a wonderful thing? Before before we... we uh, just as we start to leave the formalist zone, it is worth taking a moment to point out that this podcast... Um, Honestly, it does depend on the support support of listeners who allow us, um, uh, you know, some financial support to help us buy things like VW Beetles that we can disguise as giant spiders, um, <laughs> uh, as well as the other. It's it's the
0: official car of Horror Vanguard.
1: As well as the other essential research material that we need to put the time and effort into making every episode as good as it can be. Uh, therefore, you know, if you would like to support what we do, if you enjoy. Cultural criticism that allows us to understand the horror uh, of cinema and the horrors of capitalism. Then please do check out our Patreon. You get early access to everything we put out, monthly bonus episodes, and access to the spookiest Discord server on the podcasting left, the HV Crypt. So if you uh, if you can, you know, keep us in DVDs and strange uh, cult movies from the 1970s, please go to Patreon.com/slash horror vanguard and chip in a few bucks there shall we should we leave the formalist zone
0: let's uh let's speed away in our spider optimized vw beetles as quick as we can into the discourse
1: which would not be very quick let's be honest those things don't it's, they don't seem to they be able were breaking to. speed records now <laughs> <laughs> um as long-time listeners might know um uh, we prep for each episode with a kind of shared doc that we can kind of put notes and questions in Um, and I have two words that I would like to run by you, Ash. And it is simply this, simply this, Wisconsin
0: Gothic. Hmm. That just, that just sounds like a book from a a university press that I should write now, doesn't it?
1: Uh, It really does. And academic, (laughs) academic publishers, I know you listen to the show. Uh, you can get in touch with Ash uh through the Horror Vanguard uh, social media. Please do go ahead and email him. Um, but if we're going to talk about, I I know I know next to nothing about Wisconsin, but if we're talking about a Wisconsin horror movie, if we're talking about like the spooky side of Wisconsin, what are we talking about here?
0: Wisconsin, it's it's very interesting to approach from like a gothic perspective because there's a lot about the construction of Wisconsin culturally. Uh, that that's deeply goth, and, and this gets this gets um, occluded a little bit by like, you know, Packers cheeseheads, the Dairyland thing, you know, like the, the very marketable parts of Wisconsin that kind of make it outside of the state. But in Tro Wisconsin, like, um, so so Manitowoc, where Sputnik crashed, right? There's Sputnik Fest every year, which is like this retro sci-fi cosmism festival. Mm-hmm. And then on, on top of that, like, you know, just like every state, like Wisconsin is loaded with amazing cryptids, including headless chicken ghosts.
1: Okay, I, um, I need I need you to tell me s I need you to tell me literally everything about the headless chicken ghosts.
0: Uh sadly, it kind of starts and stops at a headless chicken ghost that will mysteriously appear before you if you're like chosen. Okay. That's it. You got to you got to be driving down a road in nowhere Wisconsin and if you get lucky you'll see the ghosts of headless chickens. Uh this sounds Ooh. amazing. <laughs> but no, no, I think it's I think it's it's it provides us a, an interesting challenge to one of uh, the weirder states to to approach. And then Wisconsin, I mean like it also to to tether this into something a bit more real and a bit darker like a lot of serial killers come from Wisconsin wisconsin wisconsin's uh big exports beer cheese and serial killers uh okay
1: cool <laughs> well well you have sold it to me <laughs> uh wisconsin the official horror vanguard tourist destination of 2022
0: <laughs> let's go this 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 will be absolutely phenomenal
1: um okay so that's that's the kind of context that we're talking about this is this oh, I'm the- sorry. I
0: forgot. I forgot one of the biggest things. August Derleth is from Wisconsin, of of H.P. Lovecraft fame. Ah, uh, yes. Who essentially stewarded Lovecraft's writings af- after his death. Uh, that like Arkham House, the press was based out of Wisconsin. How how deep does the rabbit hole go? You might be asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. So th- so that kind of gives us some context for thinking about. The giant spider invasion in the context in, in in the context of its state and where it was filmed, um, but there is there is something about this film. I, uh, all right, there are many things about this film which are deeply weird, but like, what do you think about the religious aspect to this?
0: So this this is the one part of the movie that I'm still kind of struggling with. So throughout the course of this movie, there's like a revival preacher in, in town here in Gleason, Wisconsin. Um, and he's just doing hellfire, brimstone style preaching, and he never really like intersects the main plot. Characters reference him all the time, but he's kind of his own freestanding thing. And his his preach about the kind of his preaching rather about the like sin and damnable qualities of man. Yeah, you know, intercuts these like hilarious giant spiders being like tossed towards people very gently
1: oh I mean here's the here's the question that was in my mind because the 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 the, the revival preacher bookends this film right that's how it opens that's that's some of the last audio is is of the 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 preacher given us given one of those old-time hellfire and brimstone sermons. Mm-hmm so so here's here's the kind of question is this film suggesting that the meteor bearing giant cosmic spiders is punishment from God?
0: yes, and they are, and we deserve it
1: uh okay yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> no so I, th- I think there's something really interesting about this right like there's something spiritual about. Bill Rabain's giant spider invasion that I think is worth taking seriously. And that's the like, so the end of the movie is very interesting, right? Cause at the end of the movie, um, there, there's a lot of like ambiguous, we'll, we'll talk about science later, but there's a lot of like ambiguity about what the hell these giant spiders are, how they got here and how we can stop them. Um, and it's, it's almost like magic. You know, like there, there's like a, there are micro black holes and meteors and it's just very strange. Um, but at the end of the movie, right? Uh, so we, we stopped the spiders, but the, the kind of thing about giant spider invasion is like, it's, it's too late before it even begins, right? Like this is, this is not a thing you stop. This is a thing you prevent, you know, like at the end of the movie, we're in a post giant spider world you know these like trans-dimensional micro wormholes giant spiders that are born out of geodes like they've they've been unleashed and there's no erasing the cultural memory of giant spiders um but like our, 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 uh, like the final shot of the movie is like a black screen uh like like descending in an iris wipe over our protagonists but we're we're the audience right like for them the chapter ends but for us like the house lights turn on and we have to go back into the world, right? We, we can't run in the same way the characters from the movie, you know? We're, we're also not consumed by the same darkness that gets them, you know? And we're, we're, we're living 50 years post-giant spider invasion and the cultural consequences that kind of birthed this movie. And, like, to, to think about that in the context of, like, what it means to be damned... I think is a potentially fruitful line of discourse. What are your ideas?
1: Wow. I, I I actually hadn't really thought of it like that, uh, at all. And I think that's a super compelling idea. But I think more broadly it's definitely tying into a, a, a kind of broadly cold war metaphor uh of kind of cosmic anxiety. Um mm-hmm. this idea that really the only the only threat to sort of quote unquote American uh, identity and unity is this externality, um, and I think there's 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 some kind of really interesting eco gothic lines that we can take with the appearance of the giant cosmic spiders as well, right?
0: Yes, we need to talk about the eco gothic interpretations of giant spiders invading from transdimensional micro wormholes in a historically materialistic sense. Yes. <laughs> so here, here, here's here's kind of my like big hot take about giant spiders, right? Is that, and I mentioned this in the Precy, right? The obvious comparison here is kind of giant bug cinema, um, which was the kind of American cultural response to the atomic bomb. You know, like uh, the movies about giant grasshoppers and them with the giant ants, like that's our answer to Godzilla, essentially. Um, giant spider invasion really doesn't qualify. This isn't like, it's not atomic, the, the fear that we're dealing with here—it's not like some spiders drank a bucket of radiation and now they're huge. Um, the spiders, the, these cosmic spiders, potentially predate nuclear weapons and are detached from them. Um, but what I find interesting about a lot of the giant bug movies is that they're commonly read as just fear of nuclear annihilation. Um, but the basic plot of every giant bug movie is that some giant bugs get exp- or some <laughs> sorry some regular bugs get exposed to radiation and then become giant. Exposing giant bugs to radiation would make them, like, double giant, which is an extra problem. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, but, like, the, the course of those movies is all the same. At the end of the movie, um, American military efforts and American scientific leadership come together to tame whatever that effect was, right? To tame whatever these giant insects are. And, and there, there, there's loss along the way. It's a serious problem. However, it's not it's not a fear of the existence of the atomic bomb and what it means to unleash that. It's a fear of American political hegemony losing control over it. You know, like like that's kind of the crux of the giant bugs cinema.
1: Um. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. And and also, it's it's about believing that that hegemonic control can be extended to all of nature. Yeah. As well, right.
0: Oh, uh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that there will be no consequences. So the, the uh, I mean, the classic one, the classic one is the, you know, the nuclear test uh, and nature responds to this kind of act of colossal violence through mutations and like uh, super giant lizards that can breathe fire. So, mm-hmm. uh, but here there's, this is like completely external. It's a completely external Uh, almost kind of supernatural rupture there is no there is no there is no like weird uh nuclear test there is no accidental uh spillage of waste from the nuclear power plant that goes into some local uh uh arachnid biologists home uh they just they just sort of uh they're kind of like messianic they just sort of they they just sort of uh Appear, they have this kind of spectral quality to them because they literally emerge from a wormhole, um, and they carry with them these—they're—they're encased in geodes and diamonds. It's—it's so weird that they are like completely other, that they just.
0: Uh, Yeah, go uh, go, go on, go on.
1: No, no, go go on. What were you going (laughs) to say?
0: I I was just going to say that like there's something divine about this, right? Like there's something about like, like, like just the way you described it there. Like these, these geodes emerge from wormholes ripped through the center of our galaxy. And, and these, these spiders are born of diamonds and then they, they grow to the size of buildings. And like, there's, there's something that's just like, that sounds like, like an old Bible description of an angel, right? Mm -hmm. Like these spiders are practically saying, be not afraid every time they encounter someone
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: Giant spider divinity is one of the many courses offered at horror vanguard university <laughs> <laughs> Enrollment for the spring semester will open up in November
1: uh indeed <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so what 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 do you think then of like giant- the giant spiders in this movie specifically in regards to like this eco gothic relationship with with nature because there's well, it- there's um, I think that the one, one thing that we're getting at is there's something preternatural about these I, spiders.
1: I think this is the interesting thing, right? So, like, this film uh, deals with a lot of farmers, uh, but these mm. are not these are not kind of like uh, spiders are a pretty natural part of the ecosystem, right? I personally don't like it when they're in that in my house, uh, but they they are a, a sort of um, they're part of of nature's uh, web. <laughs> if, if you no. will, <laughs> um, and, and thus, if you're in a kind of farming community, uh, spiders, maybe other uh, other what's what farmers would call pests, are pretty uh, kind of common. They're to be expected, and they can be managed and organised in a certain way, right? By uh, through various kind of means. But what I really do think is interesting is that these are not. This is not kind of like nature's revenge, right? This is. And I think that's because it probably wouldn't work if because a whole bunch of farmers kind of know what to do with, you know, bugs and pests that are getting out of hand. So you mm-hmm. actually have to have them be a complete externality in order to make them scary, in order to kind of try and make the horror effective. What do you think?
0: I think that's really interesting. What well, One of the things about the kind of like... So the onset of the giant spiders in this movie... Um, ironically enough, is a kind of material concern, right? Uh, So the spiders crash land on the property of these, like, two incredibly impoverished individuals and their kid and, you know, like, the the two adults are struggling with addiction and their lives are just falling apart, right? And they clearly don't have any cash to speak of. Um, But, you know, like... The, the one guy finds some geodes out in the fields, cracks them open, and lo and behold, they've got diamonds. And, and this represents a, an opportunity of great wealth. But they know what kind of everyone in that position culturally knows, right? Like if, if they went into town and they were like, Sheriff, I found some diamonds on my property. Well, then like within a week, some corporation they've never heard of would eminent domain their land through some kind of legal shenanigans and they would be out that property, and those diamonds and that access to the kind of material stability that that represents. And I think the the spiders almost emerge as that uncertainty made manifest, right? It's, it's that fear that we, we live in a time of great economic precarity. And if you even if you do kind of suddenly, because this is the cultural uh, mythology that we're working with, right? Like everyone can make it, you know? Like you can win the lottery. You know, you're one day away from that big break that's going to make you rich. But the giant spiders trouble that, right? Because what's at the center of these diamonds? Giant spiders.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. It, 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 in a word, yes. <laughs> the giant spider is it is is a kind of structural threat to the American myth of meritocracy and bootstrapping oneself into success. Um, because really, it isn't about work it's about kind of contingency arbitrariness mm. luck right it's isn't it luck they they think they're so lucky when they realize that the geodes contain diamonds uh and everything you've ever wanted you know you can now you can now get but oh no they also contain the giant mm-hmm. cosmic spiders
0: <laughs> mm, giant spider invasion it's the gift that keeps on giving
1: Um, there is, there is, there is one thing that I wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on in this because this is this is sort of your um, your area of expertise, if you will, which is how this film deals with mobs and law enforcement.
0: So, uh, so as as you mentioned at the start of the show, Mystery Science Theater three thousand uh, does an episode with Bill Rubin's Giant Spider Invasion. And every time the crowd appears, they're all just yelling like, oh, Packers won the Super Bowl, Packers won. And like everyone is like running around and panicking. (laughs) And like we have we have like, of course, in the text of the movie itself, it's people either running from giant spiders or running to try and kill giant spiders. And, And what we see is we kind of see like the law enforcement failing to contain this, these mobs who are going after the giant spiders and I think of course on the surface this represents like the inherent contradiction in the system in which we operate right where it's like that that anxiety right those those giant spiders that are, that live inside of our precarity they have to be faced eventually or they're just going to devour us but i think like the fact that mst3k invokes the packers got me thinking about black lives matter protests right um but because like the obvious uh, aesthetic parallel are the riots that happen whenever a team wins a sporting event, right? That That's worth any note. Cars get flipped, places get loaded, things get torched by an unruly mob. But it's, it's you know, like when you're doing that in the name of the Packers and the glory that is Green Bay, Wisconsin, that's not like a, a front to hegemonic white supremacy. And so it goes like un, unchecked and unpunished.
1: I was thinking something very similar actually which was like it's super interesting that that uh in this film the sheriff is like uh so so a kind of mob organizes to to go and track down the the giant spider which for some reason often seems to be very difficult to find <laughs> but a mob organizes to to hunt it down and they're all waving shotguns around uh and the sheriff basically appears to just go Oh, you all go home <laughs> now. <laughs> and to sort of ge- to gently wag a finger at them, um, and it's like uh, I was thinking something very similar. Like the autonomous organization of people uh, is met with wildly divergent responses based upon who those people are. You know, the the mob is seen as either something to be uh, kind of corralled and and brutalized and disciplined, or it's seen as something like that's like oh it's just people being overexcited and they just need to all calm down and go home and we know we know which groups get put into which of those categories
0: right absolutely and I think the figure of the sheriff is especially interesting because he is played by Alan Hale Jr. Uh, the skipper from Gilligan's Island mm-hmm. and so we have we have here like like Gilligan's Island used to be a fixture of the American cultural landscape right like there was a time not too long ago where like. Gilligan's Island was in like that was the hot, televised hotness forget your Game of Thrones we've got the professor and Marianne here on Gilligan's Island and like mm-hmm. yeah that's that ties this movie into this kind of uh, almost Norman Rockwell Americana right like like this this dated moment of our past that's pre-neoliberalism. You know, this this pre Reaganite America is kind of connected into Bill Rebane's giant spider invasion um, through the presence of Alan Hale, largely in his position within Gilligan's Island. <laughs> God, what is our show? Um, that's that's such that's such a good connection to make, though. That's
1: such a good connection to make, and this this that that linking back into a longer genealogy of like the kind of harmless uh that you know paternalistic law enforcement figure but actually showing the extent to that to which that that is basically one impotent to actually do anything effective and two tacitly and explicit and often explicitly condones uh often very racialized violence against those who try and organize autonomously for themselves absolutely
0: Oh, this episode's going some fun and exciting and unexpected places.
1: Well, should we should we keep this going by having a quick chat about science? Because this movie has some feelings about science.
0: Yes. Where do you want to start?
1: Oh, good grief! Uh, where where should we begin? Um, let, let's let's actually. Why don't Why don't you just kind of lay out what this film's relationship to science? And particularly NASA is.
0: Uh, so okay, um, our two protagonists. This movie has a lot of protagonists. Our two heroes, who are kind of tasked with stopping the giant spider invasion, are two different scientists. Um, and mm-hmm. and they're they're constantly just babbling science jargon back and forth with each other and discussing the wormhole. Um, that creates giant spiders that live inside of geodes, and this movie is very difficult. It's it's almost like a bad. This is a bad episode of uh, the original series of Star Trek. You know, I no, I take that back. This is a bad episode yeah. of Voyager. Because because <laughs> the, the, these two were like the the captain. The gravimetric flux is causing spider geodes to appear all over the ship. Well, what if we blast the spider geodes with a neutrino beam? like it's it's got that kind of like oh, it's gonna be one of those episodes again where they just have to like remodulate the deflector and shoot a shoot an energy pulse at a thing and then the episode will end,
1: uh yeah, basically, yes, that is sort of what it's like
0: but uh so what do what are your thoughts about I fucking love science
1: uh um. N- no, you don't. No, you don't. What you love is, is Neil deGrasse Tyson and cool infographics. You don't love science. What you love is uh, the fetishization of the fact over any kind of other argument. What you love is a sort of narrow positivistic epistemology. You don't love science. You have no interest in, in actual science. What you have interest in is a kind of like a quote unquote uh, o- owning the imagined theist that exists in the back of your own brain um i i i think there is a a i have a special amount of rage in my heart towards the um i fucking love science uh crowd um what i hate
0: to rain on everyone's parade here but uh micro wormholes do not release geodes and spiders do not hatch forth from diamonds um uh, ding, plot hole, everybody. So this movie is not scientifically accurate, which makes it bad.
1: Uh,
0: got him, got him. Got him, pew, 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 got him. Um, no, like, I I, I completely agree. Like, th- this kind of, like, scientific positivism doesn't exist without 9-11, right? Like, this is, this is directly the result of this, like... that
1: is a big... That's a big swing that I was... That I was not
0: expecting. <laughs> uh, you n- never, never expect the Spanish Inquisition of my commentary. Um, no, but like, there, there's, this, there's this kind of like, massively conservative swing that like, all these sectors of American culture take. And, and the kind of I fucking love science attitude and, and this Neil deGrasse Tyson approach to... Because Neil deGrasse Tyson, I, I have no problem with him himself. He just seems boring. But like I do take great umbrage with how he approaches culture. That whole, like, um, well, the stars aren't correct in Titanic, which means that it's bad, is, is the most vapid way to understand the human endeavor. And it's, it's directly born out of this conservative turn that American culture takes post 9-11, right? Because what, what does post 9-11 really kick up? New atheism, right? And, and new atheism walks hand in hand with this kind of I fucking love science audience. And and the two share the same reactionary appraisals of culture. Mm,
1: yes, I think that's I think that's broadly true. I think that I think that is broadly true. And I think I think this 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 film is very enamored with with the science jargon and like the kind of utopian positivism uh, of oh well we just need to. You know, all of those people who are desperately trying to defend their homes and their farms from the giant spider, they just need to go home and let the experts handle things, right? You don't need Mm -hmm. these... You don't need... Ordinary people shouldn't concern themselves with this kind of esoteric or secret epistemological world. You just need to really like the cool pictures that they can take of space and use that as the wallpaper for your laptop. You don't need to,
0: (laughs) you know and and like this makes me think about like science communication right like as as a field because it's really important for researchers to be able to communicate their ideas to a popular audience right entirely and,
1: really important as we have seen yes. with messaging around uh covid vaccines for
0: example oh absolutely and like how how that is handled is often like in, it's it's condescending. buying like all, all of those videos were like Dr. I, I keep wanting to call him Dr. Fulci because that would be like so much more interesting for me if like one of the godfathers of weird Italian horror movies became the <laughs> leading scientist of COVID. Um so so Dr. Fulci's Zombie 3, um like like there's this condescending attitude that comes with this approach to science communication, where it's like, listen, peasant. Um, I I am one of the lords of science, and I will say the following information to you, and you must absorb it into your heart entirely. Um, And it doesn't address a lot of, you know, concerns that people have, right? Like a lot of the, some of the resistance to COVID here in the, COVID vaccination and COVID policy from the government here in the United States comes from things like the Tuskegee experiment. You know, it comes from the fact that the government willingly and routinely misleads people about health issues and historically, I mean, like, there's no government on the planet more hostile to the health of its own citizens than ours. Uh,
1: and, and also, and also, this is all kind of tied up in kind of broader issues around, you know, it's really striking to me that in this film, when our NASA experts, experts talk, talk to our law enforcement expert, the sheriff, there's a journalist there who's like, oh, however, I can help but like ordinary people tend to be kind of dismissed mm-hmm. you know they're not they're not interested in finding out what's happened to 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 you know the ordinary people who have been eaten by the giant giant spider from space um, <laughs> they're not, they're not the priority really really they they are our kind of heroes and i think you're you're completely right science communication is an is an incredibly vital um uh, and and sort of central role of helping people to kind of feel involved and like this has a direct connection to their life and i think it is this the 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 reluctance to engage with science is one triggered by a virulently right-wing media especially in the united states Mm -hmm. uh that that sees science as a threat because it raises questions around like extractive capitalism fossil fuels and global warming for example but two is actually an expression of a kind of fundamental alienation from a sort of political, uh, a public politics, right? If people don't feel like they have any agency uh, over their own lives, uh, and I think that's a condition that, honestly, millions of people share, then this idea of, of being uh, given a kind of like, well, this is what a scientist said, and you have to do it because they're a scientist. Yeah, that that probably will trigger some of the, the things like vaccine hesitancy that you've seen in the States.
0: So when I was babbling about Dr. Lucio Fulci, uh, that is exactly what I was trying to say. So thank you for perfectly distilling my rambling into a correct take.
1: And it's uh, kind of striking that the UK has a much lower incidence of vaccine hesitancy, mainly because uh, when a lot of the, the the kind of questioning over the MMR vaccine came out, it turned out that the people who were pushing that uh, skepticism were, being, were later exposed as being fraudulent liars. So Mm -hmm. so, like when you actually have a kind of uh, um, engaged, like what Jürgen Habermas would call a kind of a public sphere in which everybody can uh, both uh, participate and be heard, then there is actually less likelihood that people are going to be dismissive of, of science communication in
0: general. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and part of this, like, you have to address people's everyday concerns. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I'm thinking about, like, like exactly what you were talking about here in Giant Spider Invasion. Like, these are these are people who have no money, who barely scrimp by with whatever trade they have, and and now there are like spiders from the dimension X that hatch from diamonds all over their yep. world. <laughs> Yep. and and, and, they're, and they're like rent is due in a week and a half and my entire home is filled with cosmos spiders and then, And then the response to that is like oh, just just go home and wait until we charge up our neutrino beam to send them back to dimension X.
1: And it's like I can't I, I'm totally with the guys who are like, all right, go get your friends, go get your cousins, get the shotguns and let's see if we can solve this ourselves.
0: I I totally would have been the guy who shows up in the VW Beetle and everyone would have been like, oh, dude, (laughs) that's not the right car for the mission. So do you want to talk about Russian cosmism?
1: I would love to talk about Russian cosmism.
0: Because Giant Spider Invasion has been circling the Russian cosmism hole for the entire episode. And I think we have to talk about um, resurrecting our dead to live as immortal space gods.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we should absolutely have an immortal proletarian cosmic communism. Um, That sounds great.
0: Um, For people who don't know, what is Russian cosmism? Um, So in the early days of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of like interesting and innovative and experimental thought and art and philosophy. And Russian cosmism is one of the ideas that kind of emerges from that. Um and there's a lot inside of Russian cosmism. and I think it i don't would you agree with that? it's fair to say that like a lot of that still hasn't made it to English
1: oh know? yeah yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely
0: so my my understanding is perhaps uh very rudimentary compared to someone who can I don't know read Russian <laughs> but but the basic gist is that like it's a way of looking at society and history and the future that suggests to us that there. are the the act of kind of liberating everyone from oppression doesn't just mean the present and the future, but it also means the past. And sometimes this literally manifests as making a machine to resurrect the dead so that they can live forever in space as a way to fully heal the ills of time.
1: <laughs> yeah, Russian Russian cosmism is, is a genuinely fascinating artistic movement yeah. that emerges in the first kind of 20 or 30 years of the 20th century. Um, and it has its roots in this idea that actually there is no kind of limit to the productive potential of human beings. Um, so the, there is this incredible, uh, political party called the Biocosmist immortalists, uh, which is just an incredible, just amazing. Just, uh, who, wow. Uh, <laughs> In 1922, they released uh, a manifesto which said that we take the essential and real rights of man to be the right to exist, immortality, resurrection, rejuvenation, and the freedom to move in cosmic space, and not the supposed rights announced when the bourgeois revolution was declared in 1789. Um, So the kind of basis of a, of a cosmist communist society is one uh, immortality because death is a curtailment of your freedom and two, an ultimate spatial freedom uh, to, 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 to exist in space as a sort of galactic proletarian. It's, it's kind of, it's very, it's very weird if you are accustomed to very sort of dry economist Marxism, uh, but it's also super interesting and shows the extent of the kind of radical uh, and very, very scientifically literate um artistic and philosophical avant-garde that existed in uh 20th century 20th century uh Russia.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I find this I find this line of thinking to be really Interesting. It's definitely out there, but it's incredibly thought-provoking, possibly because it's so out there. Um, in uh, Boris, the introduction to Boris Groy's uh, Russian—I almost said Wisconsin Cosmism, which I guess is the theme of today's episode. <laughs> but in, in his inter- introduction of Russian Cosmism, he writes, Fedorov interpreted this acceptance of natural death as an internal contradiction in socialist theories of the 19th century. Future generations were supposed to enjoy socialist justice— at the price of a cynical acceptance of an outrageous historical injustice the exclusion of all previous generations from the realm of socialist utopia socialism thus functioned as an exploitation of the dead in favor of the living and that for uh-huh. me y- you know like like the the literal text here where it's like we're going to we're going to create a machine that resurrects everyone who dies so that they can go live in outer space but but that the the kind of like this acceptance of the exploitation of everyone who has died in favor of everyone who will one day live i i think is an incredibly puzzling thing to think over and it, it ties in to, to the giant spider invasion I, I think in a lot of really interesting ways because this movie is very focalized on like there, there's almost like so, we, so, this preacher, right? This 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 kind of a uh, difficult to interpret figure of the preacher who we've been like chewing on this this entire episode. Um, he, he's very focused on everyone that he's everyone in his congregation, his flock, being damned and their souls being lost, and them having forgotten where they stand, and these kind of like classic hellfire things, right? And, like, but in a way, like, the the, the way we go about handling the giant spiders in the movie treats everyone who's already alive in the movie as lost. You know, like, all, all of these, like, you know, rednecks who are wandering around trying to figure out how to live with a giant spider embedded in their forehead are, like, you know, just like, okay, whatever. They're gone to us now. You know, we only have the future to save. I think this Russian cosmism really questions how disaster is approached.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And actually, it's it's probably worth pointing out that uh, quite a lot of Russian cosmists or those who were kind of connected to the cosmos movement later went on to teach people who were involved in the early Soviet space program.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Like this, this is a this is a real thing. This idea that actually. The, one of the great injustices of existence is the countless millions upon millions of people who have died, knowing nothing but exploitation, uh, the expropriation of their labor, the 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 hot, horrific conditions of of, of uh, pre Soviet Russia. So, like the cosmist idea of like actually, uh, t- the technological resurrection of the dead is is uh, liberatory. It's, it has a justification to it under socialist ideals and the expansion into space is not a kind of col- a colonizing of space but is actually a kind of uh special avenue of freedom for human beings. And if you think about it that's that's uh one of the really interesting things about the Soviet Union space program. You know, uh, America uh, America went to the moon and planted a flag in it. Uh you know, Gagarin orbited the earth before crashing it. Like so it's really important to kind of try and think about for for people who were uh, uh, in the Soviet Union or Soviet states and people who were uh, part of socialist uh, countries during the 20th century, this idea of going to space was not simply a kind of Cold War arms race with America, but was a kind of symbol of the potentiality of human existence.
0: Like what what you said, I think is, is spot on and brilliant. And like Fedorov talking about doing justice for those who have died and allowing them access to the utopia that we're trying to build directly being the thing that starts the Russian space program, which is the thing that crashes Sputnik into Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which is the thing that is like the imaginary inspiration behind a film like Giant Spider Invasion. Like the the thread that we're weaving here, I think it's just, it's I don't have a theoretical take on this, but I just love the kind of symphonic majesty, like like the the Azathothian piping of the orchestra of history <laughs> that's going on here.
1: Uh absolutely. I and, and if you've never come across it, please do try and track down some of the um uh writings of the Russian cosmists. Boris Groys is uh the person who's been super influential in translating some of that stuff into English. Um but this idea that that uh, Sputnik was not just a technological uh, accomplishment, but was actually a kind of uh, direct result of this cosmic utopianism. Where you know it's really striking that American cinema and American culture saw space as a threat, because it was the external coming in to threaten the hegemonic norm, whereas uh, the Soviet avant-garde saw space as potential freedom as potential liberation uh, and it saw it as humanity kind of going out not just into the world but into the universe is really striking
0: which uh not to not to bring this up again but uh star trek takes uh it's it's philosophical underpinnings from one of these space traditions and not the other i'll leave the audience to puzzle which <laughs> We should we should do more Star Trek episodes in the future. I feel like it's just calling to us at this point. Uh, <laughs> should we answer our questions for the audience section?
1: Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Jeez. Just brilliant. We should ask the audience some questions. So I have two uh kind of quick questions to ask people, which is. One, why spiders? Why spiders? (laughs) And more importantly, where have spiders gone in horror? Because I was thinking about this, and there really hasn't been a good arachnid horror movie for a very long time. And like the last really big one I can think of was Eight-Legged Freaks from 2002. So have spiders stopped being scary? What do people think, and why? And secondly, if... You know, the 50s to the 70s, very broadly speaking, were the Cold War cinema and the the external coming in being the threat. What are the new horrors coming from space?
0: What about you, Ash? What are your questions? Ooh, those are phenomenal, phenomenal questions. I, I think I would only only really have one question to ask the audience today, and that's Bill Rabain is decidedly influenced by... The kind of culture and history that emerges in Wisconsin specifically, and I, I would ask our listeners from other states, um, what, what what do you have in like your local cinema palette that kind of speaks to these same ideas and things that Rabane was looking to explore? Like, what are the other regional directors and regional cinema crews that are like struggling in similar directions?
1: Ooh, great question. Great question.
0: Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. (laughs) 哈 (laughs) 哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈